Okay, well, last week we uh, talked about the sources of knowledge and that we have tradition and reason and experience, emotion and general revelation and that each of those was subjective. And if all of your sources of truth are subjective, then that would kind of lead to relative truth. And so if there is no special revelation from God, then we're kind of stuck with with relative truth. And that's the only objective source. Well, um, this week, you know, if we make this claim that our revelation is from God, it's objective, then we need to be able to back that up. So this week what we're going to do is we're going to talk about that. But before we get going, I want to talk about apologetic systems. Um, I'm just going to let Phil take over from here. (laughs) The first one um, is called evidentialism, or true total rationalism. And this is the view that a person can arrive at the truth purely through uh, reason and observation, things like that. Um, You can prove the existence of God by... You know, cause and effect, and in, in um, irreducible complexity. There's things you know. There's, there's. We can prove God exists from reason. Okay, that's evidentialism. You can prove the Bible is true by historical arguments. Okay. The next one is presuppositionalism, and um, I'm going to read this. I should have put it on the screen. It says, in this methodology, the revelation claims of the Bible are not merely hypothetically assumed and later rationally validated, much less arrived at by independent reasoning. Instead, divine authority is accepted unconditionally and wholeheartedly by supernaturally endowed faith. And this system rejects all attempts to independently verify the Christian truth claims because sinful rational man has no legitimate canons by which to test God and his revelation. So we just believe first. Okay? You know, you start with God in your theology, you start with God in your apologetics. Um, And it's just men are in rebellion. And so, um, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. But with a presuppositional apologetic, I would come to you and say, well, your problem is you're just rebellious, and you just need to repent. Well, where are you going to go from there with that conversation? Okay? You know, so it's not a very good, um, presupp- it's not a very good apologetic method to, to start with that. Because there are actually people who are looking for answers, and so, you know, and we've seen several examples of where people came to faith because of reason. Um, you know, I think, um, just a second. Well, we, we know of, uh, Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, uh, J. Warner Wallace, Cold Christ, Case Christianity. There's lots of examples of people who went to the Bible. They did not have faith before they went to the Bible. They read the Bible and came away because with uh, Cold Case Christianity, eyewitness this guy was an expert on eyewitness testimony, and he's like, wow, these are true. Because of what he 
knew about eyewitness testimony comparing it with the Gospels. Okay. <clears throat> so, these are the two main camps that people fall into. Um, but, as usual, some people can't decide, so they straddle the fence. and They're a little bit of both. <clears throat> and this is the view that recognizes that we have presuppositions. I believe in the Bible, or I believe in God, but I verify my beliefs with facts. Okay? So, that makes sense. One is all about reason. One is, you start with faith, and it basically everything flows from that. And then the third one is, you recognize that we have bias, and then we try to verify it rationally through experience and the things we talked about last week. Hampton? Yeah. When faith came into my life, I, for some reason, accept, I believe in the Holy Spirit, that I accepted the Bible as being entirely inerrant, Mm -hmm. completely correct and consistent. Um, And it was a big change from before. And it would that you went you went from not believing in the Bible at all yes to believing in the Bible and yeah. all the way with the and, and with the crazy conclusion if I couldn't believe the Bible there's nothing in print that I could believe mm-hmm. and is that presuppositionalism it depends on maybe how you arrived at that it, conclusion it, 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 it just happened it just I happened it's, and I, I think it's the divine work of the Holy Spirit well I agree and and you know it's real hard in this course to not. I don't want to discount the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I don't want you know, to take a lot of time on this. I'm sorry. And, and, but that, no, that's okay. I'm just saying, you know, we're, this is a heavily rational course. We're using a lot of facts, a lot of reason. And, and I've tried to lay the groundwork because we can't let it just be my feelings against your feelings. Right. You know, my mama told me versus your mama told you. Okay? So, if that's all we got, and what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you. Yeah. And so, um, so we're we're focusing on the rational, but we got to remember the Holy Spirit's always got to be the one working. He's the one that's good. He may use the rational with one person. He did not use the rational with you. Correct. He might use a dream with the Muslim, and we hear that from our missionaries. That happens all the time. So he's he's got various methods, and uh, hopefully. You know, if we're trained in this and we have conversations with people, he can then let us be part of that process of conversion. First um, Corinthians two fourteen says that um, the unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Okay. Um, some people will point to uh, doubting Thomas. Jesus said, "Blessed are you." Be- because you believe, you believe because you see, but or he says you see believe because you see. But blessed are those who believe and did not see. Mm-hmm. Now, is that an argument that we have blind faith? How would you how would you answer that? The, the woman at the well offered proof to the townspeople. She did. And so they uh, accepted her as being truthful in what he had told her and the truth relating to her circumstances, which they all knew well. Yeah. Um, they didn't, it doesn't say they believed without any proof. It just said about this proof. 
They had ears. They heard about him fulfilling all the prophecies. They heard about the resurrection. So there were a lot of people who believed who only heard. And so it, sometimes that seems like a trick question. Somebody will throw that at you and say, well, Jesus told Thomas. That's not, that's not disproving the fact that we would use things that we heard, and logic and stuff. May I ask you something? Yes. The evidentialism. How is it different from rationalism? It's the same. Oh, okay. we're, we're using the evidence. We're using reason. Okay. And it's the same thing. Now, Wayne Grudem wrote a very big and nice systematic theology. And he says that scripture cannot be proved to be God's words by appeal to any higher authority. For if an appeal to some higher authority, say historical accuracy or logical consistency were used to prove that the Bible is God's word, then the Bible itself would not be our highest or absolute authority. It would be subordinate in authority to the thing to which we appealed to to prove it to be God's word. So he's saying, we just got to believe the Bible because the Bible is the ultimate authority and we don't use reason to make sure the Bible is true. Is that what he's saying? I was real concerned when I read that. As I'm sitting here going, I'm about to come up with ten reasons why we can believe the Bible is true. And he's saying, well, we can't use them. Because then they become above the Bible. Right? So we can, class is over. <laughs> but then I was stuck with my subjectivity problem. The Mormon's going to say, my, my whatever Book of Mormon is true. Because it says it is. And the people, Muslims, are going to say, well, the Koran is true because it says it is. And so, I was kind of in a quandary. And I kept reading. And then he says on the next page, ultimately, the truthfulness of the Bible will commend itself as being far more persuasive than other religious books. It will be more persuasive because in the actual experience of life, all of these other candidates for ultimate authority are seen to be inconsistent or to have shortcomings that disqualify them, while the Bible will be seen to be fully in accord with all that we know about the world around us, about ourselves, and about God. I think he just contradicted himself from the, from yes. the previous page. Yes. But what's he doing here? What test is he using to validate that the Bible is true? He's using experience. Yeah. He's using logic and the consistency. Yeah. Yeah, the things we talked about last week. Experience, logic, and practice. Is there a difference between proving and validating? There might be. I don't know how to draw the line. But that's, I mean, that's he's saying the, the Bible valid, is validated by the fact that it matches reality. And we talked about that. The inner world that's so important to humans is explained in the Bible, but not in anything else. But if you don't start from the other point, what point? Before, if you don't, if you if don't, don't start from the point he did before, then these things, I think, validate and, and yeah. prove are much different. Okay. <laughs> one says I start from this point. One says I don't start from that point mm-hmm. and come at it from my own. Right? So okay. if, we, if we take it at face value, or faith, <laughs> and then say, okay, well... If this is 
what's true, and then I validate it through my experience, mm-hmm. right? Because I could be a Muslim and take the Quran as true, but then I see, wow, maybe it isn't because my experience doesn't validate it. You know, I, I think it's either putting yourself above or below. Probably. Does that make sense? You're, I think you're right. I, it's, I don't fully understand it. You know, I read this stuff and I'm trying to simplify it, but. I, I'm with you. It's, a, it's yeah. an unresolved tension. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what I guess this means is we can continue with the class. <laughs> okay. So, is the Bible inspired? Um, maybe your parent, you grew up with parents telling you that the Bible is true, okay? But, you know, the, the Hindu kids told their, their uh, Hindu parents told their kids something different. Um, you know, what are some reasons that you believe it's inspired? My parents told me, I have a good feeling in my heart. But other people, you know, the Mormons, we talk about that. They have a good feeling in their heart, too. It changed my life. So did the seven habits of highly effective people. I mean, <laughs> you know, these are not proofs. These are important, I think, but they're not proofs. Um, they're subjective reasons. So the first reason is self-attestation. The Bible says it's the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord, it's all through uh, Hebrews 1, 1, 2 Timothy 3, 16. Uh, all Scripture is inspired. So <clears throat> what's wrong with that argument, though? Self-serving. Self-serving or uh, circular? The thing that said it's proving. Begging the question. It's proving itself. It's proving itself. Yeah, it's not really proof, but if it didn't make the claim, we wouldn't be having the discussion. Okay, so that's kind of, it's, it's, it's one of the important things, but it's not a real proof because any book could claim to be. But if it didn't claim to be, we wouldn't try to be figuring out if it really was. We're not sitting here trying to figure out if Huckleberry Finn was inspired by God. It doesn't claim to be. So, some things that are proof is uniqueness. There's 66 documents written over 1,500 years. All the books fit together, tell a unified story. Um, It's been critiqued more than any other document, but it stood up to all the criticism and the test of time. continues to be the most read most translated book. Um, <clears throat> so, anyway, that, that's an important feature that there's nothing else like it. It's unique. Um, we, we forget, I think, too, that it's 66 different books. We buy it all leather bound together. We call it we call them the Gospels, and then we get upset because Matthew said there were two blind men and Mark said there was one. We go, oh, is there a mistake? Okay. Maybe only one did the talking, and so, you know, he's describing it differently. Uh, we're going to talk about some, some inerrancy things in the end, but if I watch, if I'm raking leaves and I see the two kids come up to Lori through the window and I see Josiah say, can we play Age of Empires? And I could tell you that say, you know what? The kids just came up and asked Lori if they could play Age of Empires. Or I could tell you that Joe, Josiah just came up and asked Lori if, the kid, if they could play Age of you know, If he could play. Both are true. There's no conflict. It's just the perspective. So that kind of thing goes on. 
Another one is unique uh, honesty. All the failures of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and everybody else are just laid out for everybody to see. And when we were having a, a Bible study in our neighborhood, my uh, neighbor, who didn't know anything about the Bible, was going, these people are really bad. I thought that they were saints. And she was just flabbergasted. You know, but that's an opportunity to go, you know, we're not worthy. You know, God uses us through his grace. Okay, But that was... That was just a surprise to her. And if you read ancient Near Eastern documents about the Assyrians, you know, they, they're just doing great as a society until they just disappear. Well, what happened? Or, you know, they never record bad decisions. They never record lost battles. You know, that's, that's you, you know, the Bible is honest in its retelling where, um, you know, other ancient documents are not. <clears throat> Prophecy. Um, I think one of you mentioned that once before. The fact that the Bible tells the future events and they came true is a huge uh, proof. And in Isaiah 41, God says that. He says, Present your argument, says the Lord. Produce your evidence, says Jacob's king. Let them produce evidence. Let them tell us what will happen. Tell us about your earlier predictive oracles so we may examine them and see how they were fulfilled. Or decree for us some future events. Predict how future events will turn out so we might know you are God. Yes, do something good or bad so we might be frightened and in awe. Look, you are nothing and your accomplishments are non-existent. The one who chooses to worship you is disgusting. God says that's a good argument for whether you're a God or not. Preservation. Um. These, there are over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. We can compare them and get back to the original. Um, you compare that with Shakespeare's plays and stuff like that. Even after written after the printing press, there's still lots of places where they just don't know what it really said originally because they don't have enough copies. And so it's, it's very important um, the, the way it's been preserved. And the age of the manuscripts. We've got fragments of manuscripts they've dated back to before 100 A.D., just after 100 A.D. I mean, these could be copies of the original, not copies of the copies, but they go way back. And so, um, which, that's very important for understanding, you know, was something changed later on? We can go back to the older ones and compare and that's one thing I'm thinking about doing when we finish the apologetics thing. I was thinking about spending two weeks just talking about how we got all of our manuscripts, going through the majority text versus the eclectic text, and you know, King James is different. I get questions all the time at Bible Outward. Now your net Bible left out this verse. No, it didn't. The King James added it. <laughs> well, how can I say that? You know. So that, that's one of the things. I'm thinking about spending two weeks doing that when we're done with the normal worldviews thing. We can talk about it later if you're interested. Um, <clears throat> I could have done it now because it kind of fits, but then it would be a big break in the flow. The Bible has been banned, burned, and outlawed from the time of Rome to present-day communism, but it's still the most printed, most sold book. Archaeology. Over the years, you've had critics, commentators say, 
Nineveh, you know, Jonah's a fable or a fairy tale because there's no such place as Nineveh. You know, Sennacherib never existed. Things like that. But then in the 1800s, they started finding places like Nineveh. They discovered the Hittites because uh, they used to say there were no Hittites. And so archaeology has proven over and over again that, oh, the Bible was true after all. And that's one reason you don't use Matthew Henry's commentary. Because it was written before all the archaeology discoveries. I mean, it's, it's usable. But just be careful when you use 100-year-old stuff. Because they're going to say things, and we've learned a lot in the last 100 years. Um, they're still discovering manuscripts, or still uncovering things that are proving the Bible truth. Um, Nelson Gluck, who's the uh, greatest authority on Israel, Israeli archaeology, said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. Historicity. I think it's important that we understand that the Bible is first a historical book and then a theological book. Because if the Bible wasn't true historically, then you know, it wouldn't matter what it said theologically. Um, one of the things that show that it's a historical book is that it records a lot of irrelevant details. It wouldn't really matter if it happened at the sixth hour or the ninth hour or all the little things that they throw in about the people if what it was trying to do was just give a theology and a list of you know, morality and rules and things like that. And I think that we need to remember that the Christianity would not fall if the Bible was not inspired, but it would fall if it was not historical. You know, if Christ was not really raised from the dead, then we are most to be pitied, according to Paul. Extra-biblical attestation. Um, are there, there are actually things written outside of the Bible that verify the stuff that's in the Bible. And we've got a couple examples. Um, but what usually happens is people, you know, they say, well, you can't believe the Bible because the Bible, people who wrote the Bible believe that. Does that make sense? You can't use the Bible as proof. It's discounted because it's the Bible. We have to find something that's outside of the Bible. And Christopher Hitchens said, having um, no reliable or consistent witnesses, anything like the time period needed to certify such extraordinary claims, we are finally entitled to say that we have a right, if not an obligation, to respect ourselves enough to disbelieve the whole thing And Douglas Wilson wrote an answer to that. That was the, I think that was, I can't remember what book that was from. Um, God is not great. So Douglas Wilson wrote a, a, 
a response, and he said, this is yet another hidden assumption. Hitchens wants reliable or consistent witnesses, but if there were witnesses to Christ's resurrection who did not then follow him, in what sense can they be called reliable? And if they did follow him and added the voice of their witness to the 500 who saw the risen Lord, this would give Hitchens a basis for dismissing them. They are obviously partisans now. In other words, he wants an objective witness, the kind who would testify that Jesus rose from the dead while refusing at the same time to worship him. But that kind of objectivity is not available when we come to the resurrection. Those who knew of the resurrection without corresponding faith in Christ had every motive to lie about it, and those who submitted to him as the Son of God would not be considered objective as far as Hitchens was concerned. I wish I knew this when I was going through German history class at Texas A&M, because I would have loved to say, Hey, Prof, I can't believe this textbook that says that Hitler killed 6 million Jews because the author believes that Hitler killed 6 million Jews. I will only believe this if you can find me a book written by someone who didn't believe that Hitler killed 6 million Jews, but says that Hitler killed 6 million Jews. And, you know, he would have said... You're an idiot. <laughs> you know? And I would say, but that's what you say about the Bible. You know. Yeah. And uh, the fact that there were guards at the tomb mm-hmm. who saw the moving of the stone and the angels were not and lied is a verification for this. <laughs> right, right. <clears throat> so you could you could even use that with the person that you're talking about. I don't really believe what you're saying because you believe what you're saying. <laughs> I need somebody who does, I need you to say what you said without believing what you, I mean, if somebody tries to pull that, well, we need some extra biblical proof, then, you know, I don't, you don't even need to come up with any. Anson, how many, how many authors use this? I've heard it before. I don't use it, but have you, have you found others who use this argument? I can't. I mean, I've heard it a lot. I don't have a list of, you know, who I've seen say, say that or use that. But that's, you know, you can't use the Bible because it's the Bible and it's biased. And again, that's where, like I said, it's 66 separate documents. We just found all these, you know, we just put them all together. But it's, it's multiple witnesses. I think I skipped a slide. Julius Africanus historian, um, he wrote, on the whole, he said, on the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in the third book of his history calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. So, you know, here's a historical document from some guy from the first century who's writing about things that happened in you know, he's not talking about Jesus, but he's talking about stuff that happened at the same time, some of the cataclysmic events. Um, <clears throat> Josephus said, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if, he, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. I think that was probably added later, but we don't have enough manuscripts to know for sure. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, 
Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and then and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Again, another thing that they don't think is true or original to the text. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this state. So, there's a guy who didn't believe in Jesus who verifies some stuff about Jesus. Testable extraordinary claims. I was having a conversation with someone. They said, "Well, how do you believe? Why do you believe the visions of Joseph Smith?" And excuse me, why do you believe the visions of Paul, but you don't believe the visions of you know Joseph Smith? They both were visions. You know, well, the stuff that happened with Joseph Smith happened in a cave, and nobody saw it. Nobody could verify it. It was all just his word. The stuff that happened with the apostles and Peter and Paul was done in front of hundreds of people, and so there was public knowledge of the things that happened. Um, and so, when when Peter's talking, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the, uh, the Nazarene, a man clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds, wonders, and miraculous signs that God performed among you through him, just as you yourselves know. So he's appealing to public knowledge. And when Paul was defending himself, he said, he was saying these things in his defense. Festus exclaimed loudly, You have lost your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. But Paul replied, I have not lost my mind, most excellent Festus, but am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and I am speaking freely to him, because I cannot believe that any of these things has escaped his notice, for this was not done in a corner. So they... Extra-biblical attestation. The next one is a testable, extraordinary... Oh, sorry. No motivation for fabrication. Okay, what was their motivation for spreading the gospel and writing these documents? Did it gain them notoriety like Joseph Smith got or Ann Rand or L. Ron Hubbard or Mary Baker Eddy? Got the persecution and death. Yeah. They they died for what they were what they were you know teaching. So okay, suicide bombers die for what they believe. How is that different? Does that make their stuff true? Well, the suicide bomber is told that this is true his whole life, so he believes it's true. But these are the guys, they would have known that Jesus was raised from the dead or not. Okay. They weren't just taught something their whole life. They saw it happen. They were convinced. They could not, would not have, 12 men, there's no way 12 men would have hung together with a lie and all died for it. They, they, have, they, they saw it happen. Especially they were Jews. Huh? <laughs> they were Jews. <laughs> Okay. Any thoughts before we move on to inerrancy? I think learn learn that list. You know, when someone says, "Well, why should I believe the Bible?" Well, because this and this and this and this. You know, 
don't just sit there going, well, because uh, my mama told me it was true. Okay, inerrancy. Uh, atheists will often point out apparent errors in the Bible. Normally they will just say there are lots of errors, and when you say, show me one, they can't actually show you one. Okay, But there are places, like we just talked about, with the two blind men or the one blind man, and is that a, is that a conflict? Um, and, and when you find apparent mistakes or contradictions in the Bible, it can shake people's faith. That guy, Bart Ehrman, that's going around causing all the problems right now, he used to be... I think a seminary professor, and he saw something that he thought was a big mistake, and I think maybe it was the timing of the crucifixion or something, and he just threw it all away, you know. So sometimes, so it's important that we understand, you know, what does inerrancy mean, and you know, what are some things that can explain apparent differences. Um, William Lane Craig has a book that it's a called Reasonable Response, Answers to Tough Questions on God, Christianity, and the Bible. It's actually a very hard read, but there was this one section that was pretty easy to understand. And he talks about the issue of inerrancy. And here are some of the reasons that he says, we need, things we need to keep in mind. Number one, we don't know all the facts. We mentioned it earlier, it's related to that archaeology thing. If the Bible says something like the, you know, about Nineveh or the Hittites, and we have no record, well, we don't go. Well, the Bible's wrong. You know, we we can go. You know what? Maybe we just don't know everything yet. Maybe we're going to discover this this thing later on through archaeology. archaeology. Okay. Um, timing and calendar problems. I like to I like to say this. They had different clocks. And they didn't have clocks. Okay? You've got issues with when the day started with Romans, the Judeans, and the Galileans, and those were all different. You had Galileans, I think, doing Passover on Thursday night, and the Judeans doing it on Friday night. Um, they didn't have clocks. They'd go, we'd say it's 10.30. they go, it's about 9 or it's about noon. And it might just be 10.30. Okay? I can't imagine having to make an appointment, and I say, I'll meet you at about nine. My aunt and uncle, when they were missionaries in South Africa, said they first got there, and they said, oh, you're coming over when? Just now. They'd get ready. (laughs) (laughs) And it'd be seven or eight in the morning or something. They'd show up at seven or eight in the evening. You said just now. No. Well, yeah, I did. But you didn't come over for 12 hours. Well, that is just now. Well, what do you say when it's going to be, like, immediately? Just now, now. (laughs) Uh, James Davis wrote a a paper, it's on Bible.org, and he goes through great detail about the resurrection timing problem. And so he, he... I. You should go read that. Look that up. And he read it at the ETS convention in, in uh, November. But he talks about a lot of this kind of thing. <clears throat> Oral tradition works differently. Um, what is the Calvinist 
Okay, let me start over here. I'm going to mess up the joke. What did the Calvinist say when he fell down the elevator shaft? I don't know. He got up, dusted himself off, and said, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> now, what if you go somewhere and a year from now and someone says to you, what did the Calvinist say when he fell down the stairs? You say, I don't know. Well, he says, I, you know, I got that over with, okay? Is it, did they tell the joke wrong? One fell down the escalator or elevator shaft. The other one fell down the stairs. Is the joke wrong? Yeah. No. Okay, that's the way oral tradition works. So sometimes when things are told like that, that's the kind of thing that's going on. <clears throat> Ancient biography. Um, I think I knew this though recently when I was reading this, but when you read ancient biographers like Plutarch's Lives and things like that written back then, they would tell about an event in the person's life to illustrate a character trait of the, of the you know, subject. But they weren't really concerned about the timing of when the event happened. They, were, they might be putting together some thematic thing and they said, oh, I need... This event illustrates this, and I'll just use that now. And so now you read in the Synoptic Gospels that Jesus, later in his ministry, cleaned out the temple. Right? You read in John, though, it looks like early in his ministry, he cleaned out the temple. Did Jesus clean the temple twice? Some people think yes. They do. Early and yeah. later. There's an early cleaning and a later cleaning. The only reason that they would think that was because they would be going, okay, John has it early, the synoptics have it late, I can't have a conflict. Maybe that's just the way, it, it's part of that ancient biography. Maybe John wanted to talk about that character trait now, when he's not worried about chronology. Because it wasn't important back then when you gave a biography. So we really don't have to have two temple cleanings in order to de-conflict the scriptures. It could just be a better understanding of ancient writing. Does that make you uncomfortable? Or that, does that help? Was that kind of reasoning actually you know, notified the inspiration? With that what? You know, we, that's a human reasoning. Mm -hmm. You know, what you said is, you know, two a temple cleaning or one temple cleaning doesn't matter much, you know, because, you know, the ancient writing and style, and if we take that kind of <laughs> position, uh -huh. then it will actually you know, negate the inspiration of God. I, I don't think it would negate the inspiration of Scripture. I just think that sometimes we're imposing... 21st century precision with video cameras, tape recorders, you know, and expecting that kind of accuracy when, like the two jokes, you know, it's the same, the, the theological point that's being told. You know, if I describe something very, a little different in the wording, you know, sometimes it, it, I don't put quotes around it, 
It's kind of like the law of non-contradiction, right? It would be a problem if John said there were two and the other authors of Scripture said there was only one. Very good Matthew said there was only one time Jesus cleansed the temple. And then John said there were two. But neither says that. Right. They don't make the claim that there was one or two specifically. Right. So technically, it's not a contradiction. It's not. That's a very good point. But in answer to your question, I'm still uncomfortable. Well, you know what? I think that a lot of people are because that's not how... You know, we've understood it all these years. Because all of John is written chronologically. Is there any other example in John where he... Would that be the one exception? It appears to me that everything is following out of the sequence of events. I wouldn't know the answer to that. Do you know, Phil? Thinking about it. I don't know. Is it John that presents... Two events, one at the beginning, one at the end? No, just one. Hmm. And his is the end, I believe. Does John do it at the end? I think so. I honestly don't. I didn't go research this, the difference here. I'm just kind of going by what Craig was given as examples of how ancient biography, you know, they didn't tell things chronologically all the time. They just stuck things where they needed for the theme. So, <clears throat> um, eyewitness accounts again I mentioned this earlier but the guy that wrote cold case Christianity was a cold case detective for the for LA or something and so you know we, we think that the gospels are all together we need to recognize that there are four separate eyewitness accounts and if there are little differences in the telling of the story that actually validates that they didn't collaborate and gives more proof that it's true. He used to hate it when all the witnesses would be sitting over here waiting to be interviewed and they'd be talking about what happened. And he's like, oh, I'm never going to get to the truth now. <laughs> Policemen are supposed to know that. Keep the witnesses separate right? so they can't compare notes. <clears throat> Um, and what constitutes an error? If Jesus is telling the story about the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds, and it illustrates this or that, whatever, is that wrong? If we find a, a seed and we have a seed in you know in America, I can just see Jesus. Saying, well, now the smallest seed is going to be dis- you know invented in a place two thousand years from now that doesn't exist yet. Now, if that seed, he's dealing with the, the, the people and their culture and what they know, and he's using things from common experience to illustrate a point. And so, I mean, I've actually read or whatever, somebody was saying, well, the mustard seed's not the smallest seed. <laughs> so the Bible's got errors, and that's not the point. If um, Jesus said the sun rose or... We could say that's an error because we know the sun doesn't actually rise, right? <clears throat> so, um, anyway, that's just kind of a brief summary of some some things to keep in mind when you hear people say, "Well, there's errors." There's a lot of you know, a lot of them can be accounted for by just you know looking at those reasons.
And so the whole the whole main idea tonight has been if we want to claim that the Bible is an objective source of truth, um, then we need to be able to back that up. And so we need to know several reasons why it's objective, why it's we know that it's inspired because of its uniqueness and historicity and all that. And then be prepared. People are going to say, well, the Bible's full of errors. The first question is, show me one. That'll pretty much end the conversation because they can't show you one. They just are quoting from something they heard. Okay, But if they do actually try to show you one, then understanding some of these principles, you can say, well, let's go read that. Oh, okay. Well, you know, they didn't have clocks back then. You know, or they told oral tradition works differently. And so some of these can help in the conversation.